begin with Isaiah 26. It says, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord himself, he is our rock eternal. We come to him this morning. It says, the path of the righteous is level. You, the upright one, make the way of the righteous smooth. Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. I hope we can nurture a desire for him, to seek him, to know him this morning. My soul yearns for you in the night, and in the, in the morning, my spirit longs for you. I hope and pray that that's our heart this morning. Let's long for him. Look to him. Would you stand, please? We're going to sing a prayer as we start this morning. Come on, sing this prayer. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to receive Streams of Thank you. 
it to him. Lord, yes. Yes, let's express it to him in prayer. Would you pray and in this quiet give him your devotion, your love, your reverence. Father God, hear the prayer, the worship, the desire of our hearts this morning as we proclaim Christ, our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Shepherd. We look to you, Lord Jesus. For you alone are worthy of our praise. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge your great gift of obedience to the Father and sacrifice to the point of death on the cross. We glorify in your death, burial, and resurrection this morning. We glorify you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Be seated, please. And die for me. I 
him in this course together. Come on. Stand together and sing it out.
Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Good singing. Ah, uh, oh, so good. So good to sing that song so passionately and to hear just the sea of voices coming out, just praising the name of our God. It is great to worship here with all of you. Uh, my name is Eric Wakeling, one of the pastors here at Calvary. And, you know, we talk about how at Calvary we want to be a family, right? And I think one of those ultimate things when we think about family is having a picnic together. <laughs> so I want us to be able to have a great picnic today. Today is the day of the church picnic. So it's going to be at 12:30 and we want everybody to come and what's so cool is this year a little bit different is the church picnic is just right here at Cabrillo Park. Okay, so it's just a block up the street right here in our community, not driving and paying 5 bucks or more to park at Irvine Park and all that and uh, waiting in a line about 300 cars long just to get in. We've recognized that was a little bit of a problem. So, uh, we're excited for this year and we just love for everybody to come to be a part of it. And uh, what we encourage you to do, though, is to park here. There's about, you know, 30 parking places, I think, over there, which will not be enough. So just park here, walk over, uh, and we'll have fun playing games and, you know, all sorts of just good little, like, just good carnival, not carnival games, that's the wrong word, just kind of, you know, picnic-y games and stuff. It'll be, it'll be good. And we got fried chicken and drinks for everybody, and there's stuff that you can bring in there. It's listed in your bulletins, uh, but want to encourage you to make sure you come, even if you feel like you can't bring something. We want you to come no matter what, so it's going to be a good time. Also today, just by the way, we got to be uh, thinking about... Um, well, I'll get there in a second, because we also have tonight, though, I forgot to say, tonight we have all of these amazing people who have been just amazing singers with our Celebration Choir, as well as like handbell ringers, and being able to have a night of classic worship, just singing praises to our God tonight at 6 o'clock. So I encourage you to go to the picnic and then come back here for just a night of worshiping the Lord. Uh, I was, uh, I started getting distracted thinking about how today is uh, promo Sunday, like move up Sunday for all the little kids. So I don't know for those of you that are parents and you've got kids that have moved up, we got to be in prayer, especially I think for those middle schoolers, you know, walking into a room for the first time and they're freaking out and nervous and high schoolers and all those, all those different levels, those kids that are moving up. So let's be thinking about them as they go to their next class. But also those kids uh, have a chance, our young people to go to camp this summer. And we know that camp has just historically been a time that we see some of the most life change in the lives of these young people. And where we see kids, too, that were maybe just not really connected, kind of on the fringe, get connected and become people that are here regularly and part of uh, church life, which is so important especially how crazy the world is today. So we want to be able to help them. And so today, when we do take the offering, I want to encourage you, if you would want to help, we do have kids who can't afford camp. And so we want to help them to be able to get there. And so you can uh, put an offering into the little envelope and write the word camp on there, or put camp on your check, or give online and designate that as well. So when the offering comes around today, that's just uh, something special and extra that you could do. Uh, and so we also want to welcome those of you who are a guest or a visitor today. If you're here for the first time, we welcome you uh, to our family. Uh, there's something called the card. It's on the back of the seat in front of you there. And you can fill that out. 
just as a first step of connecting with us a little bit more, and then we can help connect uh, with you and pray for you, pray for anybody. You can drop that in the offering when it comes around. Uh, But something we really just care about and value here at Calvary Church, one of our core values is global missions. And so I want to welcome up Don Nellis. Uh, Don Nellis is one of our legendary missionaries at Calvary Church. Yes, give him a hand. Uh, So happy to have you here, Don. And uh, uh, so I know you literally, I think, just got off a plane from Cuba, maybe on Thursday, right? And so you are just back, but uh, lots going on. Could you share with us? I know you've got ministry in Mexico and then now Cuba. Can you just share with us maybe a little bit more what's going on? Yes. Well, good morning to everybody. Janie was going to be here also, but she came down with a case of shingles last night at at around uh, 9 o'clock. And, and so we went to the doctor, and so she decided not to come. But yeah, anyway, that's those, okay. <laughs> that's okay, yeah. And, uh, and I also want to thank Liz Gold, our beloved missions director, for inviting me and inviting us to be able to share with you this morning. Uh, yes, we just got back from Cuba, and uh, I don't know what's going to be happening with Cuba with, with any kind of reset of, of policy, but that's in the Lord's hands. But we trust that there will be ongoing... Um, missions work in Cuba. Uh, Calvary Church is le- leaving a mark there already. There is an Anna's Kitchen being built there. This will be the fourth Anna's Kitchen. Wow. And uh, I still remember nine years ago, almost nine years ago, when Pastor Dave held up a check, uh, t- and it was for $10 given by somebody here, given by a couple here. I don't know if you're here today. Um, but that was the loaves and fishes that the Lord has used to multiply many times so that this ministry of Anna's Kitchen could, uh, could, could go and have one in Oaxaca, first one in Guadalajara, next one in Oaxaca, and the third one in, um, in, along the border in Mexico uh, with Texas. It's, it's in Reynosa, and now the fourth one in Cuba. So the Lord is doing wonderful work, as he always does, in providing and we wonder, you know, how does the Lord provide for all of these things to keep going on? And it's, and it's, through, it's through the loaves and fishes that he multiplied. Um, in, in, this last, in this verse here that I, that I wrote out, it says, uh, Jesus said to his followers, and that includes us, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. And that's the way the Lord provides. He multiplies. And, and that's, his, that's his way of, of just multiplying whatever we have. So thank you, wh- whoever you are, this couple that, that gave the $10. And thank you, Calvary Church, for being with us throughout every phase of this, uh, of all the Anna's kitchens. And uh, Calvary Church has its mark on all the, uh, all, the Cal- all the Anna's kitchens. Little Anna still does not know the Lord. She still has not changed. She's still on the street. She sometimes appears sober. Other times she appears beaten up. Her face obviously showing uh, signs of being beaten up many times. But we're praying. Our constant prayer is whenever she appears is to pray with her and encourage her to give her life to the Lord while she still has life. She is, she's still uh, dealing with drugs and dealing drugs, we think. But through, this, through the inspiration of this 11-year-old girl, that we got to know nine years ago. Uh, the Lord has used her to bring countless people to Christ. 109,200 
and 60-some meals have been served at Anna's Kitchen in Guadalajara since it started. And each of those meals was accompanied with a clear uh, explanation and presentation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> wow. Well, I was going to ask you how we could pray for you, but I feel like I've got it. Okay, so we're going to pray for Anna. Yes. We're going to pray for the work in those Anna's kitchens. We're going to pray for Janie. And we're going to pray for your continued work in Cuba. How's that sound? That sounds very good. Thank <laughs> okay. you. Okay. Thank you. So if, would you please, would you join me in praying for those things now, but not just today? I mean, make a note of it. Let's, let's be praying for this, this amazing work. We love this family. This family is an amazing family. You hang out with Don here, you're going to be encouraged. Okay? So I encourage you to do it. All right. Let's, oh, oh, by oh, the way, yeah, yeah, oh, by the way yeah. in October, we hope to take another team from Calvary, short-term team, and uh, to, to help finish off building Anna's Kitchen in Cuba and have it start going at the end of October. Okay, so they talk to you or if they want to be part of it or is it? Yes, they can, okay. talk, they can talk to me and they can talk to Liz. Okay. That'd be great. Okay, good. Okay. All right, let's pray. <sighs> Almighty God, we, we come before you and we just say thank you, Lord, for this incredible work that has been taking place, Lord, throughout Mexico, Lord, and now in Cuba. Lord, the way that you've used Don and Janie and uh, others in their ministry and their family, God, to make an impact on this world for you, Lord Jesus. And so we pray right now, Lord, for Anna. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would break up that unplowed ground of her heart, God, and soften her heart for the truth of the gospel, Lord. I pray that, um, Lord, I just... I'm so thankful for the way that this ministry has changed so many others' lives, but, Lord, we pray that it would change hers as well. Lord, we pray for uh, this, this newer work in Cuba, God, and that your hand would continue to be upon it and bless it, Lord. Uh, God, but here and now we pray for Janie, Lord. That is uh, just a painful and really rough road with shingles. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do a healing work in her and allow her to have the, the rest and the time that she needs for that recovery. Lord, we pray for that, God. And, Lord, I pray for our offering now, Lord, as it goes towards helping Lord, kids go to camp and uh, help all the ministries of Calvary Church and the missions work around the world, God. I pray that, Lord, that we would be cheerful givers that are worshiping you here in this moment with our giving, and, Lord, that we would be faithful stewards then of these monies, Lord, that it would make an incredible impact in here and around the world for Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks.
Thank you, choir. How many would like to uh, hear that again? Well, if you come tonight, if you come tonight, right? You're going to sing that again tonight? All right, so thank you. Appreciate all your hard work and uh, using your gifts for this praise and honor of Jesus Christ. I'm uh, Pastor Dave Mitchell, and uh, we welcome you once again. We're in a series in the book of Galatians, and uh, you might want to have your Bibles in hand. In fact, I highly encourage you to have Bibles in hand as we want to read through the text that we're looking at. The book of Galatians is this constant uh, tension between the grace of God and the truth of God, and somehow combining those together, there is a tendency for people and for generations and for individuals to either emphasize too much grace, not enough truth, or too much truth and not enough grace. Uh, when you really lay down the law and it's all about truth, you begin to move into legalism. And uh, for other people, you move into grace and you move into license where just anything can go. And so what Paul is trying to do is to bring together truth and grace so that we're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, but that we live by the truth of God's law and God's word. And it's a reflection of that. So that's the book of Galatians. And this morning, we're talking about freedom from the law. And there's an outline that's uh, very conveniently in the bulletin that you would have received. And we encourage you to take a look at that. And speaking of laws, I have some dumb laws just to kind of tease you. Dumb laws that are on the books somewhere, somehow. For example, in Santa Barbara, it's prohibited to sleep in a parked car, which seems reasonable. It is unlawful to let a dog pursue a bear or a bobcat at any time. In San, in San Jose and Sunnyvale, it is illegal for grocery stores to provide plastic bags, and now that law is in the whole state of California. Have you heard the latest, though, from the legislature of Sacramento? That because of all the raw sewage that comes out of restaurants, because of washing all the dishes, they're going to now require us to bring our own plates and our own silverware to the restaurants so that, uh, and if you don't, there will be a surtax of $10 per meal. 
Yeah, can you believe it? But doesn't that sound like something the nannies up there would want to do? Sorry. Purely political. Forget about it. My opinion. Ignore it if you don't like it. You don't need to write me. I have already rebuked myself. It is a misdemeanor to shoot at any kind of game from a moving vehicle unless the target is a whale. Because when you're in a boat, you need to, you know, catch up. Women may not drive in a house coat. Animals are banned from mating publicly within 1,500 feet of a tavern, school, or place of worship. In Arcadia, peacocks have the right of way to cross the street, including driveways. In Baldwin Park, nobody's allowed to ride a bicycle in a swimming pool. In Blythe, you're not permitted to wear cowboy boots unless you already own at least two cows. No posers. No posers in Blythe. In Burlingame, it is illegal to spit except on baseball diamonds. In Carmel, you know Carmel, it's very highfalutin up there. In Carmel, a man can't go outside while wearing a jacket and pants that do not match. Also in Carmel, ice cream may not be eaten while standing on the sidewalk. Actually, Clint Eastwood repealed that law when he was mayor of Carmel. In Carmel, women may not wear high heels while in the city limits. In Cerritos, all dog waste must be removed from any yard within seven days. (laughs) Seven days. About seven minutes. Uh, In Chico, bowling on the sidewalk is illegal. (laughs) Apparently have a problem there in Chico. Maybe something they're smoking, I'm not sure. But in Chico, detonating a nuclear device within the city limits results in a $500 fine. (laughs) If you can find anybody after the nuclear device goes. And Dana Point, one one may not use one's own restroom if the window is open. Thank you. In Eureka, men who wear mustaches are forbidden from kissing women. In Fresno, no one may annoy a lizard in a city park. In Hermosa Beach, public restrooms must be supplied with toilet paper. Thank you. In Hermosa Beach, no person may show his or her buttocks on a playground. In Hollywood, it is illegal to drive more than 2,000 sheep down Hollywood Boulevard at any one time. Again, a problem there, apparently. In Indian Wells, it is illegal for a trumpet player to play his instrument with the intention of luring someone to the store. In Indian Wells, drinking intoxicated cement is prohibited. Again, that it's even a problem. And here we go, in Lodi. Remember Lodi? Have I ever told you that we used to live in Lodi, a livable level? I don't know if that's come up or if I've said that here, but uh, in Lodi, it is illegal to shoot silly string at a parade participant's. In L.A., it's illegal for a man to beat his wife with a strap wider than two inches without her consent. In L.A., it is illegal to cry on the witness stand. In L.A., zoot suits are prohibited. In Norco, all persons wishing to keep a rhinoceros as a pet must obtain a $100 license first. In Palm Springs, it's illegal to walk a camel down the Palm Canyon Drive between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m. In San Diego, the owners of houses with Christmas lights on them past February 2nd may be fined up to $250. Thank you. 
in San Francisco prohibits elephants from strolling down Market Street unless they are on a leash. In San Francisco, it is illegal to wipe one's car with used underwear. And in San Francisco, persons classified as ugly may walk down any street, or may not walk down any street. That's San Francisco. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little moment. So there are laws that are silly. I could go on and on and on. There are many more. Lots of crazy laws. Let me read the text that we're in Galatians 3. Paul is talking about some laws. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19, actually I'm going to back up in verse 18. And this is the regional land. If you haven't heard him before, when we go to books of the Bible like Galatians, it's usually to a group of people in a certain location. In this case, Galatia is this area of Turkey. You see it somewhat on the yellow, or on the red, I should say, on the screen that is there. Galatians chapter 3. Let me begin in verse 18. It says, For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? The the laws of Moses. In fact, I've listed on the back side, just to kind of give you a frame of reference, these are some of the laws that, that Paul is talking about. In the Old Testament, there were laws about people and family and relationships. There was laws about things and land. There was laws on debt and forgiving debt, not charging too much interest rates. There's laws on tithing to the Lord, offending God, offending people, on legal matters, on holiness and sacrifices. The laws of the Old Testament, in essence, was the constitution for the nation of Israel. It was how they should live, how they should function. It was judicial in its nature of telling you how to regulate behavior between people. That don't do this, do do those things. And how to worship God. So it's this constitution that was established. Now Paul is talking about that law to the Galatians because they're sort of brand new believers. They don't really get it all. And there's this Judaizers, the Jewish people that are coming into Galatia and saying, look, we grew up with those laws. So we think you new believers should have to grow up under the same laws that we had to suffer under. So Paul is addressing the problem of these laws. So he says in verse 19, So why then the law? It was added because the transgressions have been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise has been made. That, that's Jesus is the seed of the promise to Abraham. Now a mediator is not one for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based upon the law. You can't get righteous by keeping the law. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by the faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who went, were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor freeman, neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There's a lot there, and it doesn't just flow together so that, oh, I get it now. Let's break it down a little bit. Allow God to help us to live a life where we're really freed up from the law. What does it mean to be freed up from the law? I put a little definition over here on the big screen, a little screen, I should say. Going back to verse 18, he talks about Abraham here. But in the yellow, 
what I'm talking about when I say free from the law, not mean, it doesn't mean I can do anything I want to do. License, it means this. We are free from achieving salvation by keeping the law. The law is no longer the means by which I want to gain righteousness before God. I don't have to do things to make God love me more. And uh, some of us grew up in a world where it felt like we're always having to do things to make God love me more. And Paul says, I don't want you to have to live that way. I want your love for God and God's love for you to flow out of a changed heart, not a forced mindset that I have to work harder at. So why do we have the law? If we're free, here's the question, if we're free from the law, then why is the law important? It's to guide us. It's to guide the nation of Israel. As I said, it's the Constitution. It's the, it's the way the nation of Israel was to function. And I'm going to go down a little bit of a tangent right now and uh, to bring you up to speed and, and say some things that you may not otherwise hear. To guide Israel as a holy nation set apart from all others. As Paul is talking, he's talking about Abraham. He references Abraham consistently. Abraham was chosen by God right here in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He says, I choose you to bless you and to bless nations around the world through you. I have given to you a seed. I have given to you a promise of land. And I promise to bless you and nations around you. It's really critical that you understand that. That Genesis 12 is one of the most important Old Testament chapters. Because it's based upon God's promise to Abraham that everything else begins to fold of the history of the world. And that is through the promise of the seed of Jesus. Without Abraham, there's no seed of Jesus because Jesus came out of the seed of Abraham. Abraham is the first Jewish man. Jesus being the, the second Abraham, if you will, if I can use that term, in the sense that he is now from the seed of Abraham. Physically, he is the seed of Abraham. Spiritually, we are the seed of Abraham having received the salvation through Jesus Christ. The other passage I put on here, I just wanted to take advantage of this moment to emphasize chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15 says this. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He was known as Abram, and then he became Abraham. Saying, Abram, here's what I want to do. To your descendants, I have given this land. Who are the descendants? It's the nation of Israel today. So what did God give to Abram? What is this promise? What is this, this root of Abraham's seed to us today? He says, I want to give you this land from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephium, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusites. So there's a lot of ites back there. God says, I want to give you this land. Now, God's not a liar. God has given to Abram a promise in that passage. A covenant is established. An animal is cut in two. And typically in those days when an animal is cut in two, both parties making this arrangement will walk between those slices of an animal, as ugly as that may seem. In this case, in that case, because both are obligated to this covenant. In God's covenant with Abram, cut the animal in two, but God alone went through the two slices of the animal. Abram did not. That means, therefore, it's all up to God that this Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled. It's all on God. It's unconditional. 
Abram doesn't have to do anything. God says, I will do it for you. Now, what does that covenant include? It includes land to your descendants. I have given this land. So what is this land? Now, it's not very clear exactly where all these locations are and who these people are and where they live. But let me just expose you to a map of the Middle East because it's not often you get to hear about these sort of things. Let me just say as a precursor as well. It is so important in my way of thinking that you and I who claim if we are followers of Jesus, if you're new to Jesus, we would love to include you in this. But if you've been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, I think it's extremely important that you and I have a sense of all the words that God has said of events that have yet to occur. Because God is going to bring Jesus back. And God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant of the seed, the land, and the blessing. And the more you and I know about that, the more you and I will be ready for that. Think about this. What if you were a little Jewish boy, grew up in a Jewish family, and your parents were very, very thoughtfully teaching you about things like, for example, from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, they would memorize Isaiah 53, which talks about how Jesus Christ, this Messiah, I should say the Messiah, will be sacrificed, be brutalized. And as a, as a little boy, you think, oh, this seems so distant. What, what, what relevance does Isaiah 53 possibly have to me? I don't get what it's talking about, who it's talking about. Sure, it's some Messiah, but it's still like a suffering Messiah. Why do I want to study that? But then you're living in the days of Jesus. And as you grow up, you learn all that, and it seems sort of irrelevant and didn't fully understand it all. And then suddenly you're watching Jesus preach, heal, and then he's brought before a justice, a judicial place, and is being tried, and he is being beaten, and then he's being crucified. And suddenly you're thinking to myself, I've, I've studied this. This looks very familiar to me. Wait. Everything that I studied in Isaiah 53, my parents would always drill into my mind, although they didn't have the numbers back then. But everything I studied from that Isaiah passage, I'm actually watching it come to pass. This is the Messiah. This was predicted 700 years ago. I never thought I'd see the relevance of it. But I'm living today. I'm seeing what God is doing. That child reading Isaiah 53 would be blessed because he knew things that so many others didn't take the time to study. And so that first coming of Jesus is so vivid, it's so powerful, it's so passionate. It's so real. God's word is true. It's been confirmed and affirmed, and I committed to it even more now because I studied it, didn't get it, but then I saw it live out, and now I'm so thankful that I spent the time there. Think about that. Then think about how many of us spend time studying the second coming of Jesus, the surrounding events of Jesus. So many times I hear people say, oh, it's so difficult, I don't understand it, it's so hard, it's confusing. But if you're here, the generation that Jesus comes back, you're going to wish you had spent more time in books like Genesis 15, in chapters like Zechariah 14, in sections of Scripture like Isaiah 40 to 66, 
in books like Revelation. Because you're saying, wow, I didn't fully understand it, didn't fully have it right. But God is doing something. And the more I know about that, of the second coming, the more blessed I will be about the events of the world. Just as that little boy who grew up not really understanding Isaiah 53, but then to see it lived out in his lifetime, it's rich. That's my pitch for prophecy. Now, that's a whole nother sermon. You're getting two, and we're not going to pass the offering a second time. Here's the Middle East. Here's Israel. What land did that Genesis 15 just describe? Very well, maybe that land. Can you imagine Saudi Arabia saying, you know what, we are reading Genesis 15, (laughs) Prime Minister of Israel. So we're willing to give you Saudi Arabia. We're willing to give you this land here, Egypt, Sudan, Syria, Damascus, Jordan. You think they're all going to go over to the Jewish people and say, you know what, we believe the Bible and uh, we believe Abraham's covenant and uh, so here you go, take over. No way in the world. So how does that ever occur? Jesus is going to come back. He's going to come back right here to Jerusalem. He's going to land on that Mount of Olives. And when he lands on that Mount of Olives, there's going to be a topographical change. And that topographical change will bring about flush growth of the flow of water to a place that we now think of as a desert. God is going to change all that. You want to watch and be ready for that? Get into these passages. Be like the little boy that studied Isaiah 53 and didn't know what it was all about until the event began to occur. You say, wow, you're blowing my mind, God, that this is what you're doing. So Abraham has been promised, and this is a covenant that has yet to be filled but that God says, I'll do it when I come back the second time. That's the seed of Abraham. So this law that is being passed down and moving forward is to identify the sin. We need a restraint against sin. Why the law then? It was added because of transgression. We need something to help us to not sin anymore. So God says, let me give you the Old Testament laws so that you will not sin anymore. For example, using this little girl as an illustration, her name is Ashley Blocker. She has CIPA. Anybody know what CIPA? is. It's a terrible disease where you cannot feel pain. She can touch and feel touch, but she can drink something scalding hot and it'll never bother her. She can touch her hands in a fire and it'll never give her pain. It's a devastating kind of disease. Her mother was talking about this, and I have a little quote from her mother, talking about being pain-free. You would think, she said, that being pain-free is a great thing. But her mother said, some people would say that it's a good thing, but it's not, she said. Tara, her mother, Tara Blocker, Ashley's mother said, pain's there for a reason. It lets your body know something's wrong, and it needs to be fixed. I'd give anything for her to feel pain. So God gave us the law so that we would feel pain. Because the law tells us this is wrong and I should feel guilty about seeing these things, doing these things. As Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9, he says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it fully, lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for righteous persons, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. The law is there to cause pain because you did something wrong, so you won't do those wrong things anymore for the ungodly and the sinners and for the unhappy and and, uh, profane. 2 Thessalonians 2, and here's where you and I come into the picture of the law. 
It is this. 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2 is actually a, a good prophetic chapter as well. It looks into the future events that I was just talking about. And it begins to lay the, the groundwork, plant seeds that you and I need, be, need to be involved with. We should be engaged in these topics. And you know what restrains him now. Who is the him that is the evil one? Satan himself, the lawless one. So that in his time he will be revealed. Jesus will make Satan be known to us. But there is a restraining that is going on today. For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Lawlessness is at work. Just watch the newspapers. We see it all the time. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, the evil one, Satan, will be revealed whom the Lord will slay. What Paul is talking about is really important. Paul is saying that there is a restraining force in the world today. And he will be here until he is taken out. Who is that restraining force? It's the Holy Spirit living in you and me. He is in us as a restraint against rampant sin and lawlessness. We are here to fight back against what Satan wants to do. And Satan, as Jesus said, wants to kill, steal, and destroy. So you and I are a restraining force. I think about what Don and Janie and others are doing in Anna's kitchen. It's a restraining force. It is the presence of Christians living out the love of Christ to restrain the sins of drugs and addictions. I pray that God would get a hold of Anna's heart as well. Let me give you another example. We got a group of college students this week who are going to Cambodia. Last week, I read this unrelated to our kids going to Cambodia. I read this headline. Cambodia's child sex industry is dwindling. And they have Christians to thank. You see that? Subheadline From rescues to legal reform, a faithful minority changed the county's criminal landscape. In that article, they quote a man that used to work in a bar but got saved because somebody gave him a Bible and began to read the Bible. His name was Sek. And Sek took part in the organization's earliest sex trafficking investigations in Cambodia, and he became an insider because he was already an insider. He got converted by Jesus Christ and then began to witness against it. He said, I was excited, disgusted, and afraid of being found out during his capital city spine. And he quoted Romans 12, 12 to himself, Be joyful, hopeful, patient in affliction, prayerful and, and faithful in prayer. He says, but over time, fear had... Uh, led to longing. Longing led to transformation that is unimaginable, he told a group of uh, leaders, explaining how he became a Christian and the group's top lawyer in Cambodia. And this is what Sek said in Cambodia. God didn't just change me. He also changed a family, a community, and a nation. That's what you call restraining sin. We don't stop all sin. We don't pass laws to make people not sin. We go out and make an effort to begin changing lives like this one. Over there in Cambodia, here's Hannah Burke and Sour Chani. They're in Rafa house. Rafa is the Hebrew word for healing. 
They have 70 young girls that have been part of sex trafficking. And they're placing them in this home behind them there so that they can stop the sin of sex trafficking. And who's doing that? It's believers who have the Holy Spirit who are here fulfilling the laws of God so that there is a restraint against sin. That's what Paul's talking about. Why do we have the law? So we can cause pain to those who are sinning. So sinning will stop. Because it's not always something non-believers want to do. So why do we have the law? To cause pain to stop sinners. If we're free from the law, then why is the law still important? He goes on to say this, to reveal how impossible it is for us to gain salvation. Galatians 3.21. Let me read the verses again. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. They're not. For if the law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based upon the law. You can't make someone fulfill the law and then become saved. Don't try. Remember when I was in the uh, hardware store many years ago up in Lodi. I was with one of our dear saints, and he loves the Lord. But I was a little taken back from something he said to a, a fellow behind the counter that he sort of knew because they shopped there a lot. But he's not a believer, didn't go to church, didn't care about church. But my friend said to this counter, this salesman, he says, are you tithing? The guy was like, what? Tithing? He probably didn't even know what the word tithing means. Well, you're not tithing, you should be tithing. Now, if he said it because he wanted to look spiritual in front of me or something like that, I don't know. But I was a little taken back at that. You don't go around telling people who don't know Jesus Keep the law. Because keeping the law is not going to save anybody. We don't go around regulating people's behavior to keep the law. We go around bringing people to Jesus to save them so that Jesus can help them live according to whatever laws should be in place. Because the laws don't save anybody. You can't keep them good enough, well enough to be saved. And so then he goes on, the laws of God, they lead us to Jesus. They want us to know Jesus. This is the thing. You don't tell people the law, the law so they will keep the laws to be, Jesus, to be saved. You bring them to Jesus, as he says in verses 23 through 25. Reading the text again. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. The law kept us in custody. The law was a prison to us, he says. Being shut up in the faith, we're all closed in in this container, the sealed container, which later was to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith. This is a tutor that helps to lead us to Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is playing off something historically that was going on in Galatia. A tutor. Jesus is like a tutor. The law is like a tutor. A tutor in those days... A family would not necessarily spend a lot of time training their own children, but they would get a slave. And the slave would come into the family's life, and the slave would take a child, maybe five or six, and be a tutor until puberty, or 14, 15, 16 years of age. And the slave was a high disciplinarian. So Paul's playing off the historical events of those days. He says, man, just like you probably had a tutor in your home to help rear your children, to discipline them, and sometimes they would beat the kids. They didn't get it right. So Paul says, look, the law is sort of like the tutor you had in your home who's helping you bring up your children the way you think they should live their lives. But the law is like the disciplinarian that is sort of harsh 
She says, I don't want it to be that way anymore. So the tutor is simply there to point you to someone who's going to set you free from that kind of law. So you don't have to labor under this disciplinarian lifestyle. You don't have to struggle to live your life righteously. It's not some behavior modification where you force everybody to be holy. It's where Jesus gets inside of me and he begins to change me from the inside. It's this intrinsic motivation of the Spirit of God causing me to want to do what before Jesus I didn't want to do, but people told me I had to do. There's a big change that goes on there. I remember, I don't know why this came to my mind. I've been thinking about my dad this last week for some reason. I remember a, a time when he and I were in a truck with another guy from our church back in the Phoenix days. We were riding along, going a little camp out, pulling a boat, fishing. We, we never had the toys. We had friends with the toys. <laughs> That's kind of our thing. And so he was going to take us on fishing and a hunting trip. I remember sitting in the cab of that truck, three of us side by side in that bench row, and between my dad and I, we had a bag of Oreo cookies. And I love the Oreo cookies, still do. And I remember I was eating them. I don't know why this memory comes back to my mind. I remember eating one Oreo after another. I mean, I was consuming like 10, 20 Oreos in one spot. I was getting these sugar flashes going on, but man, this stuff, I was addicted to these things. And suddenly my dad reached over and grabbed my hand and says, David, stop. Enough. And I was a little chagrined and embarrassed. I still feel kind of, feel a little offended by that. <laughs> but he was right. I was just indulging, indulging, indulging. I shouldn't do that. As a kid, you need a tutor that comes along and says, don't. But you know what? Now that I'm mature and old, I don't do that anymore. I don't sit there pigging out in Oreos anymore because I know what that white stuff is. <laughs> it's disgusting. And my arteries are going to clog up. So when you get mature, you choose on your own to do the right thing. You don't need a tutor to tell you to stop doing the wrong thing. When you come to Jesus, he changes your heart so that you don't want to do the wrong thing. You desire to do the right thing. Paul in Romans 7 struggles with that. And we don't have time to get into it, but here's where our faith in Jesus Christ declares us to be righteous. It is a transformation that occurs. Let me read Romans 8, 2 through 4, where it says these words to us. Paul again writing, he says, for the law of the spirit of the life of Jesus Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. He set me free from that law. For what the law could not do, the law can't make anybody get saved. He can't be good enough to be right with God. The law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. God did. God did this, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What the law could not do, God says, I send Jesus to do for you. And here is the key. If you're mom and dad, grandma, grandpa, you got kids and they're indulging in Oreo cookies or something worse than that. You don't regulate them by demanding to keep the law. You do all that you can to reflect Christ, his love, his grace. You come alongside, you point them to Jesus, that Jesus is the redeemer, not the law. 
not regulations. Now there needs to be discipline. Don't be crazy. I shouldn't be eating all those Oreos. My dad was correct for rebuking me, even though I still feel like, and he's not here for me to say anything about it. But you need those moments, but those things don't make you right with God. So therefore, what we need is Jesus Christ. He changes everything. And this is these familiar passages, wonderful passage. Our relationship, when you come to Jesus, it changes everything. We are now his children. We, we become adopted into his family. He transforms us. We'll talk more about that next Sunday on Father's Day. Our relationship with Jesus Christ also. We are now identified with him. We're baptized. We're clothed with Christ. This word clothed with Christ is a great term that goes back to that historical time in which they lived. In those days, the Gentiles had a celebration that was similar to the Jewish bar mitzvah, where a young boy becomes of age and becomes a man. In those days, for the Gentiles, they had this toga, toga virilis, and it was a ceremony where when this young boy is growing up and reaches sort of the manhood stage of life, they would give to him a toga, and they would clothe him with that toga. And that toga is clothed around that young man, and it was symbolically saying, son, you are now inheriting the inheritance of this family. We are saying that you are one of us. You are now entering into adulthood, and you are part of our family. And all that we have is yours. Paul takes that beautiful concept that they all grew up with, which is now We want to put the toga of Christ on you. We want him to consume you. We want him to change your life. We want your identity to be in Jesus and the heir of his inheritance. I shared in an email this last week, you know, I got a ticket uh, a number of years ago because I was parked in front of one of our missions homes on street sweeping day. So I walk out after visiting one of our missionaries, and I didn't know it was street sweeping day. I didn't know there was any sign there and so I came out and there was a ticket on my car and I was kind of put out because I felt like I'd been wronged you know how it is <laughs> even though I was wrong I was wronged and so I read the ticket and it actually had the wrong address I thought loophole you know <laughs> and so I, I appealed it based upon that and so I went to this guy in, in City Hall I had to go down to City Hall and here's my ticket and look at it's the wrong address I wasn't even at that address it was wrong, and it said under penalty of law everything is factual and true and I said everything's not factual and true Shouldn't I get a pass? He says, no, doesn't work that way. He said, why were you there? I said, I was there because uh, I had some business to do with some of our missionaries of our church. I'm a pastor at Calvary Church. I'm also a chaplain with the San Juan Police Department. <laughs> then he looked at me. And he looked, I think I said that. He looked at me. He said, oh, well, you, you were there on business. Ticket dismissed. So I got off. I thought, well, that's a wonderful thing. Sadly, spiritually, some of us live as if Jesus is simply there to get a ticket of the penalty of sin taken away because I don't have a relationship with that man. I don't even remember his name. We don't talk. We don't get coffee at Starbucks. We don't continue to fellowship together. We don't text, how's your day going? We we don't do anything. I don't know him. He is gone. But, But I still remember that he was the one that set me free from 50 bucks (laughs) of a ticket. And for some people, Jesus is simply the guy that cuts the penalty for the sin of death. But he is not the one 
that I am identified with in baptism and clothed with spiritually. Jesus doesn't want to be the good cop that cuts me free from the penalty of sin. Jesus wants to be the clothing of my whole existence, that everything I think about, everything I do, and everything I am is in a relationship with him. Don't leave Jesus behind the day he got saved and then think, I, don't, I, don't, well, I haven't really talked to Jesus in a long time. I haven't read God's word in a long time. That's not being clothed with Christ. That's like me and the guy that forgave me the ticket. No relationship. Jesus wants a relationship that's personal, that's intimate, that comes and changes our lives where now we are no longer looking at people according to their race, their status, or their gender and all the diversity that we hear about in the graduations that are going on today. Jesus says, I don't want that for the church. I don't want you to think about whether you're Jew or Gentile, he says in there. I don't want you to think about your Greek or Jewish or slave or freeman. I want you to think about Jesus because Jesus is the status. Male or female, Jesus is the status. Jesus changes my relationship with God, so I'm baptized by him. Jesus changes my relationship with people around me, people who are different than me, people who have a different background, different culture, different values. But he changes me so that I relate to them in a healthy and vital, loving, kind, and gracious way. And wherever there is broken relationships in our lives, for you, for me, God says if Jesus is working, if you're clothed with Jesus, if you're clothed with Jesus, he's tearing down whatever barriers there are. If he's not tearing those barriers down, then there's something wrong with being clothed with Jesus. Because when I'm clothed and baptized in Jesus, I become a different person. And whatever barriers of race, status, gender, or pain, unresolved conflict, Whatever those barriers are, he should be changing them. That's the ideal. That's what Paul is talking about because he wants us to live this kind of life. I encourage you to f- just to finish up. I put three questions on here for you to think about as we sing these last songs. How has your relationship with God changed? Where is God changing you? In what ways do people see Jesus' attitude and deeds in your life? How has he clothed you in your attitudes, your relationships with people around you? And how have you found peace and unity with people who are different from you? How is he changing the relationships that are on this horizontal plane? How is he changing the relationship with God on the vertical plane? All those are part of what it means to be clothed with Jesus Christ and that things are different from me. Not because the law tells me I've got to do it, but because my heart yearns to do it. There's a desire to do it. This is the vital relationship of being clothed with Christ because things change for the better for all of us. Let me pray for us. Father, help us as we deal with some of these things that are hard. God, I pray that some of this sticks, some of this makes sense in my heart and the hearts of people who are here. God, that we would live this life that is for you, being clothed with Christ. And that Jesus is more than just the good cop that got me off from the penalty of a violation. But that he is one that I am clothed with. That when people see me, they see him. When people see me, they see the love of Jesus. When people see me, they see the grace of Jesus. When people see me, they see the compassion of Jesus. When people see me, they see the mercy of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the forgiveness of Jesus. 
Father, I pray that we would be reflections of Christ. Not because we're struggling to keep the law, but because we've been clothed with Jesus Christ. And he covers everything and reveals himself through me. Father, thank you. Empower us for that. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Use this time for reflection. Save that I am set free. 
as we wrap up our service, I wanted to invite you, if you need someone to pray with, we'd love to pray with you. We have folks right up here at the front in the prayer points that would love to pray and just see God's blessing upon you. No longer struggling to live righteously to be loved by God, but filled with the Spirit of God, clothed with the Christ, Jesus Christ, so that His power just radiates through me. So that wherever we go, the love and grace of Jesus is just evident. Not because I work hard at it, but because he lives through me in it. And I pray that God would give us that blessing. And also, we'd love to meet you out in the lobby after the service as well. I want to remind you that also the picnic is at 1230 over here. Cabrillo Park, you can walk on over there. We encourage you to come. It's a great way to help show the oneness in Christ that we are. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor freeman. So all you slaves, you can be just as like the freeman uh, here. It's a bad joke. And so there's neither male nor female. But the idea is that we're one together in Jesus Christ. And it's hard to reflect that when you're so spread out. So what I encourage you to do as we sing this last chorus once, one more time, could we symbolically sort of gather together? It's like I'm in the middle of the aisle. If you want to cross the aisle, it's okay to cross the aisle. It's acceptable to be near a seat that you don't normally sit in. That's okay. And so we encourage you to reach out and, and just care for one another. And if you want to hold hands, that'd be great. But just show the oneness of Christ as we once again sing How Set Free from Jesus. All right, come on. Come on, we're going to sing. Come on, let's sing together. We're going to sing together now. We are set free, all right? Let's sing we. All right, we are set free. All together. Here we go. We are set Have a great day. God bless you.